The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we've all heard of um, the people like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and, of course, the feminist movement. But um, you may not have heard of a counter-movement called Fascinating Womanhood. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And what's fascinating (laughs) is, first of all, my guest and how her story um, of meeting the uh, woman who who founded the Fascinating Womanhood movement, Helen Andelin, how she uh, met her when she was a young teenager, and then how she came to uh, meet her again uh, as part of her research uh, when she was a grad student. And, um, of course, what's particularly interesting, the reason why I want to talk about this today, especially, you know, we have things going on like Bruce Jenner and all kinds of other stories about gender bending and about um, just the, the changing roles, the confusing roles, gender roles, that men and women are still wrestling with today, perhaps more than ever. Well, um, that's what fascinating womanhood deals with as well. You know, the question is, um, who is really happier when it comes to women? Who is really happier, the career woman attached to her cell phone like an umbilical cord, or the housewife and mother attached to her husband and diapers. These are some of the things that, um, you know, make, make up the debate between feminists and anti-feminists, um, like um, Helen um, uh, Andelin's Fascinating Womanhood Movement. So, <laughs> before we... Before, um, before I go on describing this, let me introduce my guest. Her name is Dr. Julie Newfer. She is an author, a professor, and a historian. She was driven to write her new book called Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement, starting, you know, little did she know um, when she met Helen Andelin as a teenager that she would one day grow up <laughs> to write a book about her. Um, and so, you know, what what is fascinating, of course, is how Helen Andelin um, spoke to the grown-up Julie Newfer uh, in a much more intimate way, sharing her secrets, secrets about her relationship with her husband, secrets about her book and her movement, and so on. And these are all um, things that you don't hear enough about this counter-feminist movement, and I think we need to know both sides of it. So welcome to the show, Julie. Well, thank you. Well, let's start here. with when I said thank you. It's good to be here. Sure. 
let's start with your own story um, and how you first met he- Helen Andelin and, and what your mother's involvement was with her and your mother's falling out with her and all of that good stuff. Okay. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in a very conservative town, in a very conservative home, and my mother uh, became a fascinating womanhood teacher. She, One of her friends read this new book that came out in uh, the 1960s, mid-1960s, and she read this, gave this book to my mother. Well, my mother was so taken with the book that she became a fascinating womanhood teacher. And as a child, I helped my mom prepare these classes by, you know, stacking together all of her pamphlets and stapling things and helping her pack her boxes and her bags. And uh, this book, Fascinating Womanhood, was required reading for me and my four sisters. And uh, also another book called The Fascinating Girl for, for um, single girls. So I grew up re- reading this book, learning how to be the perfect wife, and when I got old enough to graduate, I graduated from high school, and I moved away, and I kind of left all of that behind me and and uh, thought, well, I'm going to go on and do something different. And then uh, years later, when I was in graduate school, I was a single mom working my way through school, and I was a graduate student, and I was in a popular culture class working as a teaching assistant. And my professor was talking about the women's movement, and then he held up this pink book, and he said, and you know, if you wanted to be um, a perfect wife, all you had to do was get this book and read it. So I saw that book, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's the book that I was raised reading back in Arizona as a kid. I didn't realize that it had anything to do with the rest of the country. I thought it was sort of a local thing. And when I realized that it, I had this epiphany because the year that I had been in graduate school, I was kind of kicking around looking for the right subject to do my research on. A couple of things turned out to be kind of a dead end. But when I saw that book, I knew that that could be my subject. And I went up to my professor after the, um, after the class and I said, you know, I was raised to be a fascinating woman, and I think that I could do my doctoral dissertation on this subject because I understand these women. Um, I was raised around them, and I bet Helen Andelin, if she is still alive, would allow me to interview her. So he said, well, let's do it. So I took this, uh, undertook this uh, journey to try to get Helen Antolin to talk to me and to talk to some of these women who are her fans and followers and teachers. And um, and I was able to interview my mom before she died and talk to her about why she did this and what she accomplished. And so that's how I got started on this journey. Well, that's... Um, um... That's, yes, it must have been a surprise to suddenly see it again years later. Um, well, why don't you maybe define, well, I, I'm 
caught between getting into the meat of the fascinating womanhood movement in the book and and more um, talking. Let's let's go back because I mentioned about your mother. When your mother was a teacher of the fascinating womanhood movement, and what happened happened to cause the falling out between your mother and and Helen Angelin? Well, my mother um, my mother was a uh, a very talented. Um, charismatic woman, and she started teaching these classes, and she said, you know, I I think we need to have some sort of a teaching manual. Um, by then, it was kind of a small movement in the beginning. It started out, Andalyn started teaching at her church, and then there were so many women that signed up for these classes that she began teaching uh, at the YMCA and into um, uh, larger venues. And so it was kind of something that Andalyn had sort of written out a little notebook and and made copies. But my mother came up with a, a manual. And so she sent it off to, to Mrs. Andalyn and said, you know, what do you think of what do you think of this? Is this something that can be used? And so what Helen Andalyn did was she took that manual and she copyrighted it in her own name. <laughs> she had um she had illustrations drawn to illustrate this manual, and then she copyrighted in my own in her own name, and um, had a falling out with my mother because it was my mother's material, wow. and she was never paid for it, and she was um, never uh, acknowledged for it. So they they did have a falling out, and and Andalyn, um she was quite a zealous person, and she was uh, difficult to deal with for me in the beginning and she had many fallings out with her with her followers and and close friends and it it was unfortunate but that was well, that you know, was her what, personality well it, it's sim- it's interesting because that's similar to what um some of her critics have said about her Helen Angelin to begin with that really um a lot of the the theories or the advice that she put in her books were things that came from pamphlets from the 1920s and the Bible. Tell us about that. Well, when I first went to to meet her, she was living on a remote farm out in Missouri, and um, she invited me out. Well, actually, I called her. I got a hold of my mom, and we went through all these people, and I finally got a hold of her, and I introduced myself, and I said, I'm a graduate student. I'm doing my doctoral dissertation, and I would like to write about you and your movement. And this was the first time she'd heard the word movement. Hmm. She just, she she knew how popular it was. She had sold almost three million books, but she she didn't think of it as really as a historical event like I did as a historian. And so... She said, well, um, are you a fan or are you an enemy? Mm. And I said, well, I'm, I'm a historian. And so she, she wanted to find out if I, you know, was opposed to her and wanted to write some sort of terrible thing about her. Mm-hmm. And so I told her, I, I promised her, I said, I will write a non-judgmental history, a true history of you and your your movement. So she said on the phone, she said, well, I want to have complete control 
over what goes in and what goes out. So all of it will have to go through me. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. And she said, fine. And she hung up on me. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I didn't hear back. And I thought, well, I better find another subject. So a few days later, she called me back and she said, you know, I've, I, I've thought about it and maybe it would work out okay, but I want you, I want you to come to Missouri and meet me. And if I approve and I like you, then we can go forward. If not, you know, then I'm sorry. So, mm-hmm. so I flew to Missouri, was uh, picked up by her daughter who drove me out to the little farmhouse, this little cottage. She lived on this big farm. And I stayed with her, and she she uh, made me tried to make me comfortable, and and there was no hotels or anything nearby, so I stayed with her at her cottage, and she was very difficult in the beginning because she had a a rehearsed uh, kind of a rehearsed story. So when I sat down with my recording equipment and started to ask her questions, she started with this rehearsed story mm-hmm. and sort of went on. And uh, some of the things I knew about, little anecdotes, and so she was repeating those. So I would stop her. First time I stopped her and said, well, okay, let's go back to that. She said, excuse me, I'm trying to do something here. Mm. And I said, well, I need to be able to ask you questions. And she said, well, that's the end of the mm. interview. So she would do things like that or not allow me to look at letters. She had letters from some of her fans and teachers, and she wanted to hold the letter and then turn it over. She didn't want me to get into any of her files, and she, um, in some cases, was very short and, and kind of cranky and rude. And I thought, you know, this is just not going to work out. So... <laughs> I called to make arrangements to get back home, and um, she, she said, well, are you going to call it quits? And I said, you know, I just I just don't think it's going to work out, but, but I appreciate you taking the time. So that evening, she came out in, uh, and said, would you like to watch a movie with me on your last night? And I said, sure. So she... She had a bunch of uh, DVDs, and she she put one on. It was some, I don't remember the movie, but she said, well, let's get in our pajamas. <laughs> I said, okay. So I got in my pajamas, and she, she made some popcorn, and we sat on her couch and watched this movie. And I realized how lonely she was. Mm. She She didn't really have anybody to talk to. Nobody really remembered who who she was and mm. her family was uh she did have a daughter close by but she was very busy with kids and so the next morning I got up and she said well come on into my office I'm going to let you uh look through some of my things so I went into her office which was a for a historian it was just a treasure trove of pictures and letters and publications and newsletters and so she said, you can look look through here, and if you need anything else, just let me uh, get it for you. And um, I said, well, I would like to make copies of this material, 
So she called up her son who lived in another town and was a physician, and he went to his office and brought a copy machine over to his mother's house Mm. and let me use his copier, and um, I copied for days and days. I copied every letter, every newsletter, every application form for Fascinating Womanhood teachers, um, everything I could get my hands on. And she had a, it wasn't just her home office, she she also had a building uh, behind her house that one of her sons had built for her that was waterproof and temperature controlled and that she had stored all of her archives in. Mm. And so it was just, I just kind of fell into this, all of these materials, and that's how, that's how I got the materials. That's how I got her to talk to me. She opened up, and then she began. We talked for hours. I had 31 hours of taped conversation, and I would make copies during the day, ask her questions, and then at night we would sit down with a tape recorder, and she really opened up to me. She told me a lot of things, and she said, you know, um, this is off the record, but, and then she would tell me something very personal, or she would say, you know, I just want the truth to come out. Um, these are things I want everybody to know, but I've been too embarrassed to tell my children. I don't want them to think badly of me. So, but I do want this, I do want you to know this. So when I was transcribing all of these tapes during the sections where it said, um, this is off the record. Of course, I just left that out of the um, out of the uh, transcribed material, hmm. and was really honored that she would tell me all of these things. But um, and so pleased that she finally did open up, and she kept in uh, correspondence with me and called me. And after I got home, and I was working with all this information, but. We, in a way, became friends, even though we're very, very different, very, <laughs> very different philosophies. But um, so I had this this relationship with her. Hmm. Now, do you think that her pajama party was like a test to see whether you liked her, or do you think that she was just so desperate to have company, you know, when, when she knew you were going to leave, that she figured she had to do something to keep you there, or a little bit of both? I think she, I think she was lonely, and she just wanted some girl company, and you know, a girl's night. And I think mm-hmm. that also, I think she was afraid. When I, when I told her it wasn't going to work out, she thought, oh, no, my message is not going to get out to the mm-hmm. world. And this is one thing she told me is that I want, this is a message for the world, and I want my message, I want people to know. So I I do want you to do this. And I think before she might have just been blustering and bluffing and uh, kind of strong-arming and thinking that she was going to get it her way, and mm. I just said, Helen, this is this would not be professional of me as a historian to just put in only only the the things that you want to reveal to me. I have to know the story and the history, and if I can't do that, then it's not a history. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, it's not a it's not a historical work. It's and like so an essay. She, 
I think she got nervous and thought oh, she's going to leave and I'm getting old. She was um, 82 or something. And so she had a change of heart and decided that I actually was, maybe she, maybe she was testing me to find out if I was going to be uh, her adversary or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this is a perfect way, place to take a break because when we come back, um, we can start with uh, Helen's life and um, how she developed this whole theory of fascinating womanhood and fascinating um, girls, <laughs> girl, girlhood, girl, what? yeah, yeah, girlhood, yeah, um, and um, and and get into some of that. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Dr. Julie Newfer. She is the author of a new book called Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. So stay tuned, and we will be right back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about fascinating womanhood. That's the name of the movement, uh, the anti-feminist movement that my guest, Dr. Julie Newfer, has written about. Her new book is called Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. So before the break, we were just starting to, um, you were talking about, I thought that was so fascinating, talking about, uh, you know, it is it is always tricky um, getting, trying to get interviews um, with someone who, uh, you know, is, is concerned about how they're going to come off and all that. Um, but tell us about this, and it's so interesting. Also, when you when you tell us about um, her life and how and her movement, it's so fascinating that she was actually so controlling and all that. When that seems to be the antithesis of what what she was telling women to do. So to start with um, start with Helen Andelin's own life and how she got into forming this movement, writing this book in the first place. 
Well, Antolin uh, was, uh, she was raised in a devout Mormon home, and uh, she married a boy that she met in college, and she went to college for one year and pretty much went to college to find a man to marry, like her sister's um, some of her sisters had and some of her, you know, that was a lot of the reasons women went to college back in the, in that time. And uh, she met this boy and she ended up marrying him. And they were married for 20 years. They had eight children. And she told me they were just really happy until the kids started coming. And then she felt neglected. She, uh, he stayed late at the office he ignored her when he came home. The kids kind of drove him crazy, so he wanted to eat dinner in his in the bedroom. And she was trying everything that she could think of because she had this very romanticized picture of how marriage should be. And she told me, she said, you know, I worked hard on looking good, and I always made sure I had my makeup on, the house was clean, and uh, but I had no idea what was why he wasn't happy. So she had a girlfriend who lived in uh, Oakland, California, and she called this friend and invited her to come out. And the girlfriend, after she had been at the ambulance home for a few days, said, Helen, you know, your husband is not treating you very well. And uh, Helen said, I don't know what to do about it. And the friend said, I've got something that you might want to read. Come back to California and visit me, and maybe this will help you. Now, her friend had been teaching marriage classes for, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. And um, so Helen went to California. The friend showed her these uh, booklets, and what they were were eight little booklets, and they were called The Secrets of Fascinating Womanhood. And they were advice manuals written to single girls in the 1920s. So Helen read these, and she was uh, mesmerized, and she felt that she had this was her answer because for many years she had been praying and fasting and reading books on self-help and trying to figure out how to solve this problem in her marriage, and she felt that God had led her to these books. And so she took them home with her, she copied them, typed them all out, and returned them to her friend and started trying out these principles on her husband. And she told me that there was this miraculous change. He started coming home from work early, he took her on vacations, he was nicer to the kids, he stopped eating in his room, and she was so taken with this transformation that she felt it was her responsibility, her religious responsibility, to give this information that she had found to other women. So she started having discussion groups in her home. And then wait, wait, wait. These women... Okay, before, but wait, before we get into that, what were some of the things that she did that turned him around? Well, um, act feminine. So uh, she determined that she would never wear pants. So she always wore dresses, and she wore feminine clothing. So um, accentuate the differences is what she says in her book. So act feminine. Don't ever do male jobs 
like mow the lawn, um, paint walls, wash the car. And so act feminine, admire your husband, and admire him in manly ways. Um, you know, your the great way he supports the family or the great way that he does male, traditionally male work. And um, uh, so, and never, never try to compete with a man. And then she used some old-fashioned um, advice from the Bible, you know, obey your husband, um, always defer to your husband. And so what she did was essentially build her husband's ego and allow him to call the shots and to just be this this generous, happy, feminine woman who had dinner ready when he got home, made sure the kids were cleaned up, um, didn't give him grief about anything. And so these were some of, of her principles. And um, she, as she said, you know, my husband became a new man. Well, now that's that's really fascinating. Um, do you think <laughs> that during the time that you know, first of all, it is very typical that that is the the time when husbands lose interest, which is when kids come, and yeah. um, the wife often you know is spending giving more attention to the kids. Also, she becomes a mother, and that makes men feel. Um, that they're crossing the taboo because you're not supposed to have sex with your mother and she becomes a mother, which kind of blurs the lines. And so yes. that's very typical. And that's also the time when men are more likely to have affairs. Do we know mm-hmm. whether he had affairs during that time? I don't think he had, I don't think he had affairs. Uh, I, I really don't. He was a very um, good-looking man. Yes, he's a he's a very attractive man, and um, she. But often, she said in her book, she would say, "If you don't treat him the way that he wants to be treated, don't be surprised when he has affairs." But uh-huh. this was information she never told me. Although she did say that a woman, there's no reason why a woman cannot be prepared for sex with her husband every night. And so mm-hmm. she said, "I put my kids to bed at." seven o'clock, you know, seven thirty, the kids were in bed and I spent time with my husband. And so that's as close she she got to telling me mm-hmm. this, you know. But she did say, I don't think any marriage can be successful without a very um highly uh how did she say it, a very a very high form of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think her children would be shocked to hear that. I was a little surprised to hear it. So um <laughs> But that's what she said. So I thought, well, she provided him the maybe what he might have looked for elsewhere. Yes, and that yes. was her philosophy. Yes. Well. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so okay. So continue with you were starting to say about how she then developed classes about this. So she she started holding classes and she kind of put together this outline and um, women kind of started flocking to these classes. And one thing that Helen had noticed from all of her reading and and her trying to find answers was that there was a lot of women who were unhappy. And so she felt that if she could help these women, and then these women started coming back and saying, my husband 
was transformed too. And so this group of women grew, the classes grew larger, and then she started uh, assigning or giving out, uh, allowing women to be volunteer teachers. She didn't charge anything. So her women in her classes started to ask, well, is there just a book that we can read? Would you just write some sort of a textbook? Mm -hmm. And so she felt that this was another um, sign from God. It was another um, uh, job that she needed, that she had been called to do. So she started out writing a book, and she didn't have a college education. She had no experience writing, and uh, she would get up at four in the morning and write until she had to get the kids ready for school, and then she'd get them ready, and she had a little couple of kids still at home, and she got a babysitter for them. She hired a housekeeper, and her husband was very supportive of this, uh, of her writing this book, Hmm. and um, it was about a two-year-long process, and then she came out with this book and tried to get somebody to publish it, and nobody wanted anything to do hmm. with this book as far as publishers. And she went to New York and and all of this, so they decided that they were going to just print it themselves. So they went to a yearbook company and had 500 books printed. They all sold, so they had 1,000 printed. They all sold, hmm. and... They sold, before she got her first book contract, they had sold 500,000 copies out of their home. Hmm. And her husband and the boys were packing up, packing books in the basement and selling them out of the, out of the kitchen. And <laughs> she was taking them to bookstores. And, um, uh, but that's how she, you know, that's it's, how it's she so wrote interesting. her book. And she because told we me take, a lot about this. We, we take that? self we take self-publishing for granted today, but, you know, this was in the 1960s. I mean, she had to have been one of the first people to do this. Yes, and she, she, it was, uh, she was one of the first people to do it. She hired an artist. She hired a, um, she hired an editor, a woman that she worked with by mail for two years, and they would send these manuscripts back and forth and um, this woman said well I don't you know I want to just tell you I uh, you might have some trouble getting this published because it asks women to essentially give up their personality and um, Mm. go back to the stone ages and I just don't know if uh, you know I'll help you but I just don't know if you should call it fascinating womanhood because when I was a kid, my mom gave me these advice manuals, and I think they were called that. <laughs> so, huh. uh, but uh, and kept the name, and uh, they worked through this book and got the publishing, got the editing done, and then published it themselves. So the editor was kind of on to her. She was sort of hinting. <laughs> Maybe you well, the editor had no idea that um, much of this material came out of the um, of the booklets. She had read them. I don't know. I mean, they were forty years old by then, uh-huh, and yeah. um, so she might have just heard about them. She knew the the name of them, 
but she mm-hmm. didn't recognize that much of the material that she mm-hmm. was editing actually <laughs> came from those booklets. And uh-huh. so, um, but she was a, I thought she was a, um, seemed like a fine editor, and uh, she gave, uh, and I was able to read some of their letters, and she gave some very good advice to to uh, Helen as she was going through this book writing process because she didn't know anything about it. She mm-hmm. she didn't, you know, she didn't know anything, and so they they hired an artist to make them up a a, a logo for their book and a, a jacket, you know, a cover and. And she started selling these books, and then the volunteer teachers would take these books to the classes and sell them. And um, that's what my mother was doing. She was a by the, by the time my mother started teaching, um, there was a charge for classes, mm-hmm. and um, so the teachers could buy the book at a discount and then sell them at their classes. And there was a charge for the classes, but um, these teachers really didn't make much money at all, but they felt that they were doing some sort of of good, you know. Uh huh. So now, what, one of the things also that's fascinating is that um, Helen Anderlin's book was published at this in the same year as Betty Friedan's *The Feminine Mystique*, and um, how you know why is it or and I know and um, Helen was on some panels with Betty Friedan, ultimately, right? No, she never. Um, she never met with her on on TV or on radio. Um, when Betty Friedan, for instance, when Betty Friedan came to Seattle, um, women that had were followers of Helen Anderlin actually picketed the oh, um, uh-huh. the convention center or wherever she was speaking and um, there are pictures in the newspaper of Ferdan coming out and kind of you know scratching her head and looking at these women who were dressed in aprons pushing baby carriages holding feather dusters (laughs) (laughs) having signs saying we love housewives and and um, but Ferdan and and, um, Helen Andelin never confronted each other and um, uh, I'm not sure why they might have had an opportunity to do it, but um, they wrote the book the same year because they both, you know, we were going through, our entire country was going through a social crisis of the 1960s, and and traditional roles were being challenged. And um, Ferdinand noticed that women were unhappy and Andalyn noticed that women were unhappy, but they had two different uh, philosophies. And so you get these two different um, uh, sets of of ideas, and um, they ended up becoming adversarial. At first, Andalyn had no idea what a feminist was. She didn't know who Ferdinand was. She didn't know anything about her book. And when she first started hearing about feminist, she called them her sisters in her writing. She said, you know, our sisters are are misinformed, and as soon as they get the right information, then, you know, we can bring them over to our side. And then as time went on, she began 
you know, essentially bashing these women uh-huh. and saying they don't speak for all women and they're not, they aren't real women themselves. And, you know, she became quite harsh to feminists. Okay, and we'll get more into that when we come back. Um, We need to take a break now. We're talking about fascinating womanhood, and my fascinating guest is um, Dr. Julie Newfer, and her book is called Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in The Business of Living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success, no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with Dr. Julie Newfer who is the author of Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. Now, before we get into the, uh, you know, the debate between feminism and anti-feminism, I wanted to ask you about the Fascinating Girlhood book, um, where Helen Andelin apparently tells girls, single girls, how to get a good husband, <laughs> like what she did. Yes, and it, it's, uh, the title of it's uh, The Fascinating Girl. You can still you can get it on Amazon. And... Um, and, and uh, it was an advice book that I read. My my sisters read it, and it was like I said, it was kind of required reading in my home. But it was how to attract a man, and the way that you attract a man is by being so feminine that you are just so charming that they can hardly resist you, and also by uh, stroking his ego 
by getting him to do difficult things for you, you know, if you needed the jars unscrewed off of something, you know, let him do it. And, and, um, it, it was ad- admiring him, um, never, uh, allowing any sort of sexual sexuality. So if it, it was kind of like acting no, a way no that would put yourself at- on a pedestal. No sexuality until you're married, you mean? No, no, no sex until you're married and um, no um, to be a, a, a lady. So no swearing, no slapping somebody on the back and talking with your mouth open. Um, always wear modest feminine clothing uh, so that you can look like the demure um Weak, weak would be a word, a word that a word that she used. Um, woman that a man would want to rescue, and she really believes, like a lot of advice manuals that are that are out today, like one of them being the surrendered wife, that tell women that if you act a certain way, he is going to respond and act a certain way. So you can essentially turn this diamond in the rough into this shining example of heroic manhood. And so it, it, this, this book taught girls that if you learn the, the routines, and she had a, a couple of things she would say, like never look a man directly in the eye mm-hmm. um, except more than a few seconds and then look away because you don't want to appear um, overtly... Aggressive sexual mm-hmm. and so you would kind of learn these these behaviors and think if I learned this then I can get a guy which is which is what the 1920s advice manuals said sort of like um, selling a car you know create interest and then uh, create more interest eventually mm-hmm. leading up to getting the proposal and so this was essentially what this book was about. And um, so and here's the $64,000 question. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you uh, employ these principles? Actually, I, I did not. Um, as a kid, uh, well, I guess I was 14 and 15. I read, I read these things and I thought, well, I was, uh, I was raised to be modest and raised in a home where there were traditional roles where girls did girls' work, like washing dishes and cleaning the house, and boys did the the boys' work of washing the car and mowing the lawn. But I never felt comfortable acting that way. And, um, And I did not, when I got older and decided that it just, it just wasn't, for me, I um, I never tried any of the um, of the techniques. Such one is, you know, if you're upset, cry. And I just, I just the only way that I would cry is if you know I got my finger slammed in the door or something, mm-hmm. and it really hurt. But but um, I never did do that. And I um, in my own marriage, people have asked me would you obey your husband? And I said, well, 
yes, if our house lit on fire and he said, run out the front door, I would do it. And, you know, it's my little joke of, of uh, saying I don't really have that kind of a relationship. And um, so, but, you know, I read hundreds of letters from women who said that this worked. My marriage was transformed. And I, as a historian, what I do, I teach American history, and when I'm talking about the 1960s, I talk about the big events of the 1960s, and I talk about the women's movement. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have a lecture on the women's movement, and then I talk about the counter-movement. And it's amazing what my students will say, because after these two lectures, I ask them, so what was... Yes. Andalyn's point of view, what was, you know, for Dan's point of view, what do you think? And, or I'll ask by a raise of hands, how many of you have been raised by mothers who stayed home full time? And it's, it's changed. I've been teaching for 15 years, and it's changed over time where there are more kids that will come up to me after a public lecture, you know, women in their 30s or 40s or um the college kids that I teach that say to me, you know, I, I want to stay home. I want to be a housewife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, a, uh, I just read an article in New York Magazine that said, that was titled something like The Retro Wife. Mm. Feminists, feminists say they're having it all by staying home. And mm. so um, there is this movement that I see as a historian and as a teacher in our popular culture even if you look at uh if you look at tv shows or you look at advertisements for home products like swiffer or vacuum cleaners or dishwashers you see the woman in the kitchen cleaning up or running the vacuum around and she's not wearing work clothes and it's the middle of the day and I'm noticing this as a teacher of American history and popular culture. I think it's very interesting. Well, you know, I um, i mean, I know to a lot of people it seems a little strange that as a professional woman, a psychiatrist, and, you know, all the other different professional things that I do, um, one would think that um, I was pro-feminist movement, but I am absolutely not. I mean, that isn't mm-hmm. to say that... Um, I don't think that women should get equal pay and that kind of thing. Yes, of course um, they should. But I don't think women should be equal in the same way. I mean, in every, I don't think men and women should become the same. Um, I think mm-hmm. men are becoming too feminized, and I think mm-hmm. women are, have become too aggressive, too masculinized, and nobody is mm-hmm. happy, and particularly um, the kids. You know, we mm-hmm. have more and more divorces as each one, each the, the woman and the, the husband and the wife are not happy, and this results mm-hmm. in more divorces. And then we have children, mm-hmm. and I talk about this a lot, children growing up in divorced homes who mm-hmm. um, are afraid of intimacy because they're afraid they don't want to ha- repeat the same pattern of their parents, you know, getting in a committed relationship and then only being hurt when it falls apart. Um, kids mm-hmm. need mothers in the home where having, I mean, you don't really, it, it doesn't take a psychiatrist to look around and see that generation upon generation is really growing up without 
um, the right kinds of family values, American values. Um, the trust is gone in America. The erosion of truth and trust in America is, is staggering. Um, uh-huh. You know, our country is really in a very bad state, and I think a lot of it can be traced back to the fact that there has not been enough mothering in the home, enough, enough two-parent uh, parenting in the home. And kids are kind of left to their own devices. No one is teaching them about things that should be important in life. And um, they're just growing up like Topsy and really getting, being influenced by violent video games, um, influenced by things that are too sexualized. And um, they're, not, they're not having parents eating dinner with them every night. Two parents, you know, that whole thing that kind of went out, yes. Um, yes. which is one of the worst the downfall of this country can be traced in part to that. I mean, you know, everybody's out doing their own thing, and nobody's looking mm-hmm. after the kids. The kids, no one's asking the kids how they're doing, how they feel mm-hmm. about life. And um, mm-hmm. so I really think that this, and of course, you know, the feminist movement where women um, were taught to compete and, and with men and to do better than men. And, um, you know, I think a lot of bad things came from that. And what's so interesting about these um, books, you know, the fascinating womanhood and the, even going back to the 1920s where that started, um, not that I agree with, you know, absolutely everything, but um, but there is a lot to be said for that. And I don't know if you know, but I wrote a book called Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. And there are actually, yes. I never read Fascinating Womanhood, either the books, the pamphlets from the 1920s, or, <laughs> or Helen Andelin's book, Fascinating Womanhood. I didn't know about this movement until I came across you. Um, <laughs> and, and yet, a lot of the things that I write about, you know, how bad girls, for example, are able to seduce these men, to get these men to marry them, to, to I don't mean just seduce them sexually, I mean like seduce them into relationships, um, yes. even though they have uh, ulterior motives, that it does mm-hmm. have to do with making the man, the key word is making, or words, is making the man feel like the biggest stud on the planet. And and you do that, in a <laughs> sense, by all these feminine kinds of things. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting, you know, I don't, some of these things, um, uh, you know, I, I don't, say that women should obey their men, for example, but building the man's ego, you know, the thing, these, these miracles that um, mm-hmm. Helen Andlin said that she created with her own husband and these other women who followed the rules and, and did these same things and their husbands turned around, it's because they made him feel like the, the biggest stud on the planet by, be, by being the most feminine um, woman on the planet, you know, not letting yourself go, not, not wearing makeup, not um, you know, okay, doing things with the bathroom door open, all of that kind of stuff that people today, um, some people today want to think is cool and modern and all that. Really, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think so too. And and what you had, what you said about the family. I mean, uh, women. Uh, some some people argue that women have been kind of duped by. By feminism, that's what. Uh, there's a new book out, um, and one of the authors is Phyllis Schlafly, but it's called The Flip Side of Feminism, mm-hmm. and it talks about all the things that happen, the bad things that happen, as a result of feminism. Now, Betty Friedan, she was a housewife when she wrote her book, and she 
when what she did was she criticized the system. And when you criticize this patriarchal system of traditional roles, then you end up uh, criticizing the housewife. And so what she did when she criticized the housewife and called the, the American home a comfortable concentration camp hmm. and said that housewives were um, an eight-year-old child could do their work, then you had all of these women who had been offended, who had invested their lives in being mothers, like their mothers had, and they were offended. And so then you get these adversaries. And so here comes Helen Hanselin and says, being a housewife is the most respectable, honorable thing you can do, and your number one motivation in life should not be equal rights. It should be love, having the love of your husband. So she was like a, a whole other voice. Mm-hmm. And Betty Friedan, as the feminist movement became oh. more and more radical, Friedan tried to rein that in and said, you know, this needs to be more family-oriented. And she ended up leaving the National Organization of Women because she felt that the movement had become too narrow, too radical, and Mm -hmm. it was offensive to families. Mm -hmm. And so she ended up backpedaling, and many feminists accused her of trying to reverse this revolution. Mm-hmm. Julie, I hate to interrupt you, but I want to make sure we're, our time is up, and I want to make sure I have the time to give people your website and to tell them, again, the title of the book and where they can buy it. The book is Helen Andelin, which is A-N-D-E-L-I-N, Helen Andelin and the Fascinating Womanhood Movement. So you can get that on Amazon, and then you can check out uh, my guest, um, Julie Newford, at julienewford.com, which is Julie N. E-U-F-F-E-R, com. Well, Julie, this has been fascinating. <laughs> you are a fascinating woman, and I am glad that you wrote this book to uh, to remind people of, um, of Helen Andelin and this movement. And I really think that there needs to be a lot more dialogue about these issues so, you know, so that we don't so that women don't get caught up in thinking oh they have to either be a feminist or they have to try to have it all and and things get lost in the process so thank you so much you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch we'll save you a seat 